Section two of Reminiscences and Table Talk of Samuel Rogers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Sir George Beaumont once met Quinn at a very small dinner party. There was a delicious pudding, which the master of the house, pushing the dish towards Quinn, begged him to taste. A gentleman had just before helped himself to an immense piece of it. Pray, said Quinn, looking first at the gentleman's plate and then at the dish, which is the pudding. Sir George Beaumont, when a young man, was one day in the Mount, a famous coffee-house in Mount Street, Grosvenor Square, with Harvey Aston. Various persons were seated at different tables. Among others present there was an Irishman who was very celebrated as a duellist, having killed at least half a dozen antagonists. Aston, talking to some of his acquaintance, swore that he would make the duellist stand barefooted before them. You'd better take care what you say, they replied. He has his eye upon you. No matter, rejoined Aston. I declare again that he shall stand barefooted before you, if you will make up among you a purse of fifty guineas. They did so. Aston then said in a loud voice, I have been in Ireland, and am well acquainted with the natives. The Irishman was all ear. Aston went on. The Irish, being born in bogs, are every one of them web-footed. I know it for a fact. Sir, roared the duellist, starting up from his table, it is false. Aston persisted in his assertion. Sir, cried the other, I was born in Ireland, and I will prove to you that it is a falsehood. So saying, in great haste, he pulled off his shoes and stockings and displayed his bare feet. The joke ended in Aston sharing the purse between the Irishman and himself, giving the former thirty guineas and keeping twenty. Sir George assured me that this was a true story. Aston was always kicking up disturbances. I remember being at Ranelagh with my father and mother when we heard a great row and were told that it was occasioned by Aston. If I mistake not, Aston fought two duels in India on two successive days, and fell in the second one. In my youthful days, Young's Night Thoughts was a very favourite book, especially with ladies, I knew more than one lady who had a copy of it in which particular passages were marked for her by some popular preacher. Young's poem, The Last Day, contains, amidst much absurdity, several very fine lines. What an enormous thought is this! Those overwhelming armies whose command said to one empire fall, another stand, whose rear lay wrapped in night, while breaking dawn roused the broad front and called the battle on. At Brighton during my youth I became acquainted with a lawyer who had known Gray. He said that Gray's pronunciation was very affected. For example, what nice, in parenthesis, noise, is that? Henley, the translator of Beckford's Vathek, was one morning paying a visit to Gray when a dog came into the room. Is that your dog? said Henley. No, replied Gray. Do you suppose that I would keep an animal by which I might possibly lose my life? 
I was a mere lad when Mason's Grey was published. I read it in my young days with delight, and have done so ever since. The letters have for me an inexpressible charm. They are as witty as Warpole's, and have what his want, true wisdom. I used to take a pocket edition of Gray's poems with me every morning during my walks to town to my father's banking-house, where I was a clerk, and read them by the way. I can repeat them all. I do envy Gray these lines in his Ode on a Distant Prospect of Eton College. Still as they run, they look behind, they hear a voice in every wind, and snatch a fearful joy. But what immediately follows is not good. Gay hope is theirs by fancy fed, less pleasing when possessed. We cannot be said to possess hope. How strange is it, with all Gray's care in composition, the word shade should occur three times in the course of the eleven first lines of that ode. Her Henry's holy shade, whose turf, whose shade, whose flowers among, our happy hills are pleasing shade. Both Fox and Courtenay thought Gray's fragment, The Alliance of Education and Government, his finest poem, but that was because they preferred the heroic couplet to every other kind of verse. A celebrated passage in it, Oft o'er the trembling nations from afar has Scythia breathed the living cloud of war, and where the deluge burst with sweepy sway, their arms, their kings, their gods were rolled away. As oft have issued host impelling host, the blue-eyed myriads from the Baltic coast, the prostrate south to the destroyer yields her boasted titles and her golden fields, with grim delight the brood of winter view a brighter day and heavens of azure hue, scent the new fragrance of the breathing rose, and quaff the pendant vintage as it grows. A celebrated passage in it is a good deal injured by the forced and unnatural expression pendant vintage. I once read Gray's Ode to Adversity to Wordsworth, and at the line, and leave us leisure to be good. Wordsworth exclaimed, I'm quite sure that is not original. Gray could not have hit upon it. The stanza which Gray threw out of his elegy is better than some of the stanzas he has retained. There scattered off to the earliest of the year by hands unseen are showers of violets found. The red breast loves to build and warble there, and little footsteps lightly print the ground. I believe few people know what is certainly a fact, that the Maclean who was hanged for robbery, and who is mentioned in Gray's long story, quote, he stood as mute as poor Maclean, was brother to Maclean the translator of Mosheim. Gray somewhere says that monosyllables should be avoided in poetry but there are many lines consisting only of monosyllables which could not possibly be improved. For instance, in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, Thou canst not speak of what thou dost not feel, and in Pope's Eloisa to Abelard, Pant on thy lip, and to thy heart be pressed, give all thou canst, 
and let me dream the rest. Topham Beauclair, Johnson's friend, was a strangely absent person. One day he had a party coming to dinner, and just before their arrival he went upstairs to change his dress. He forgot all about them, thought that it was bedtime, pulled off his clothes and got into bed. A servant who presently entered the room to tell him that his guests were waiting for him, found him fast asleep. During my youth, umbrellas were far from common. At that time, every gentleman's family had one umbrella, a huge thing made of coarse cotton, which used to be taken out with the carriage, and which, if there was rain, the footmen held over the ladies' heads as they entered or alighted from the carriage. My first visit to France was in company with Bottington, just before the revolution began. When we arrived at Calais, we saw both ladies and gentlemen walking on the pier with small fox muffs. When we reached Paris, Lafayette gave us a general invitation to dine with him every day. At his table, we once dined with about a dozen persons, among them the Duc de la Rochefoucauld, Condorcet, etc., most of whom afterwards came to an untimely end. At a dinner party in Paris given by a French nobleman, I saw a black bottle of English porter set on the table as a great rarity, and drunk out of small glasses. Boddington had a wretchedly bad memory, and in order to improve it, he attended Feinnagel's lectures on the art of memory. Soon after, somebody asked Boddington the name of the lecturer, and for his life he could not recollect it. When I was asked if I had attended the said lectures on the art of memory, I replied, No, I wish to learn the art of forgetting. One morning, when I was a lad, Wilkes came into our banking house to solicit my father's vote. My father happened to be out, and I, as his representative, spoke to Wilkes. At parting, Wilkes shook hands with me, and I felt proud of it for a week after. He was quite as ugly and squinted as much as his portraits make him, but he was very gentlemanly in appearance and manners. I think I see him at this moment, walking through the crowded streets of the city as Chamberlain on his way to Guildhall, in a scarlet coat, military boots and a bag wig, the hackney coachman in vain calling out to him, A coach, Your Honour? When I was a young man, I went to Edinburgh, carrying letters of introduction from Dr. Kippers, Dr. Price, etc., to Adam Smith, Robertson, and others. When I first saw Smith, he was at breakfast eating strawberries, and he discounted on the superior flavour of those grown in Scotland. I found him very kind and communicative. He was what Robertson was not, a man who had seen a great deal of the world. Once, in the course of conversation, I happened to remark of some writer that he was rather superficial, of Voltaire. Sir, cried Smith, striking the table with his hand, there has been but one Voltaire. Robertson, too, was very kind to me. He, one morning, spread out the map of Scotland on the floor and got down upon his knees to describe the route I ought to follow in making a tour on horseback through the highlands. 
At Edinburgh I became acquainted with Henry Mackenzie, who asked me to correspond with him, which I, then young, romantic, and an admirer of his Julia de Roubigne, willingly agreed to. We accordingly wrote to each other occasionally during several years, but his letters, to my surprise and disappointment, were of the most commonplace description, yet his published writings display no ordinary talent, and like those of Beattie they are remarkable for a pure English idiom, which cannot be said of Hume's writings, beautiful as they are. The most memorable day, perhaps, which I ever passed was at Edinburgh, a Sunday, when after breakfasting with Robertson, I heard him preach in the forenoon and Blair in the afternoon, then took coffee with the Piozzi's and supped with Adam Smith. Robertson's sermon was excellent both for matter and manner of delivery. Blair's was good, but less impressive, and his broad Scotch accent offended my ears greatly. My acquaintance with Mr. and Mrs. Piozzi began at Edinburgh, being brought about by the landlord of the hotel where they and I were staying. He thought that I should be gratified by hearing Mr. Piozzi's pianoforte, and they called upon me on learning from the landlord who I was, and that Adam Smith, Robertson and Mackenzie had left cards for me. I was afterwards very intimate with the Piozzi's, and visited them often at Streatham. The world was most unjust in blaming Mrs. Thrale for marrying Piozzi. He was a very handsome, gentlemanly and amiable person, and made her a very good husband. In the evening he used to play to us most beautifully on the piano. Her daughters never would see her after that marriage, and poor woman, when she was at a very great age, I have heard her say that she would go down upon her knees to them, if they would only be reconciled to her. End of section 2